We'll intervene whenever we decide it's in our national security interest to intervene. And if you don't like it, lump it. The problem with America is not that we go around marauding around the world imposing ourselves. Mm. The problem with America in the last 10, 15 years since the end of the Cold War, really in the last 60 years, is that we've been too slow to get involved. I don't know how many Iraqi civilians were killed, but I can assure you that the number is the absolute uh, minimal that it's possible uh, in modern warfare. Every nation in every region now has a decision to make. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. Now, that land over there is yours. You'll go back to it one day because your fight will prevail and you'll have your homes and your mosques back again because your cause is right and God is on your side. Welcome to the darkened hour. Welcome to another episode of the darkened hour. I'm your host, Adam Fitzgerald. With me today is Brian McGlinchey, director of 28pages.org and current independent journalist at Stark Realities. Thank you for coming on to the show, Brian. Hey, it's great to be with you, Adam. Uh, we'll start off simple. Um, what are the 28 pages? The 28 pages are a chapter from the report of a congressional joint intelligence inquiry into the intelligence community's activities uh, before and after the 9-11 attacks. And uh, so last chapter of a report that spanned several hundred pages um, these pages uh, describe a variety of links, investigative links uh, pointing toward the Saudi government. So links between uh, people associated with the 9-11 plot and people who are either Saudi government officials or appear to be uh, possibly in some cases uh, uh, agents of the Saudi government. They're working for them. And yeah, they were classified at the insistence of the Bush administration. Does the 28 pages recognize other foreign agencies such as Israel or Pakistan involvement with the monitoring of the hijackers, or is this strictly a Saudi investigation by the GIA? This, yeah, this chapter is specifically about Saudi government links. I mean, there might be just an incidental mention or two of uh, maybe, uh, I can't remember, like the United Arab Emirates, for example. Right. Uh, but uh, yeah, yeah, contrary to speculation, <laughs> there was so much speculation while they were secret. You know, that's the nature of classification, you know, where people are thinking, you know, who, who, who is it? It was, it, yeah, but it was, it, this chapter is pretty much exclusively about Saudi government mm -hmm. links to the attacks. Yeah. The 28 pages were actually mentioned by 60 Minutes in 2016, um, when former 9-11 Commission panelist John Lehman was asked if there were names in the documents to which Lehman responded, um, quote, the average intelligent watcher of 60 Minutes would recognize them instantly, end quote. Who is Lehman referring to? He was referring to, as some of us guessed at the time, uh, Saudi Prince Bandar, mm. uh, who was the Saudi ambassador to the United States you know, at the time of 9-11 and, and the time leading up to 9-11. And a close, he's also a close confidant and friend of George W. Bush and the Bush family. To the extent that uh, Mrs. George H.W. Bush Barbara Bush, right? Uh, called called him uh, called him Bondar Bush, like he was part of the family. Yeah, they, well, they actually that uh, friendship uh, lasted many years. Um, also, just to follow up on Bandar Bin Sultan, 
he uh, was actually friendly to other administrations, but with the Bush family, he had a very close connection. And I think um, as well as with the bin Laden family, um, especially with Salim bin Laden, the older brother of Osama bin Laden and one of the more astute businessmen uh, in the bin Laden Saudi uh, bin Laden group, which is the largest construction firm in Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. Um, in regards to uh, the redaction of the 28 page, the redaction came about from former President Bush, who uh, exclaimed that releasing the material would, quote, reveal sources and methods that would make it harder for us to win the war on terror, end quote. Um, would that be a valid defense? If not, why? Well, uh- you know, that's the usual go-to to defense anytime the government wants to keep anything mm. secret. You know, it would expose sources and methods and put people at risk and so forth. Um, you know, it should always be greeted with skepticism. And I think the 28 pages, once they were declassified, just reinforced that they deserve skepticism. Um, no, I mean, once you read the 28 pages, which people can do at 20pages.org after they were released in 2016, I mean, you really didn't see anything in there that was indicative of sources and methods that I saw that would would have done that. Uh, it was pretty clear that this was uh, purely intended to uh, uh, just shelter the Saudi government from, from any scrutiny. In July of 2016, the federal government released a document called File 17, which contained a list of three dozen names, mostly Saudis who have some connection to the 9-11 hijackers, which, uh, well, how, which much of the information was based on from the 28 pages. Can you elaborate further on that? Yeah, that was, a, that was an interesting precursor. You know, the, there was a drive at the time ongoing to uh, release the 28 pages and to you know, press the administration, the Obama administration at the time to declassify them. The document 17, as we call it, um, that was an interesting precursor to the release of the 28 pages. Um, at the time, there was a drive ongoing to, to release those pages uh, and to press the Obama administration to do so. Um, and at the time, Kathy Owens, who was a 9-11 widow, um, she had been following up herself. Uh, she's been very active and you know, done interviews and so forth. She'd been following up herself, pressing the National Archives, hmm. um, which was uh, conducting its own declassification review you know, you know, on a separate appeal process. Um, pressing them, you know, for status, and a, a National Archives employee directed her to this document 17, which had been quietly, you know, declassified, just kind of posted out there uh, on the on the internet by the National Archives, but you know, without any announcement. Hey, here it is. So uh, she notified me of that, and uh, you know, sure enough, it was a very interesting, uh, again, precursor to the 28 pages. You definitely see some overlap between the two documents. Um, it just lists you know, dozens of, of people of interest, essentially, to you know, investigators who were looking at various ties that you know, range from uh, uh, students in the country, you know, the, the uh, dry run uh, of a, the apparent dry run during a commercial airline flight where uh, two individuals were you know, testing, appeared to be uh, testing security and uh, attempting to enter the cockpit and, you know, exploring that avenue uh, to Navy officers with, of the Saudi Navy with suspicious behavior in the San Diego area. Just a whole raft of, uh, of uh, intriguing uh, uh, names and 
people. Yeah, they, well, that was going to be my next question, actually, uh, because in November of 99, you had an incident involving two Saudis, and that was Mohammed al-Qutahin and Hamdan al-Shalawi, who were, who were on the American West flight from Phoenix to Washington. And Qutahin was reportedly trying to enter the cockpit, uh, thinking it was a bathroom uh, twice. Meanwhile, the FBI field office out of Phoenix explained that this was later a dry run for the 9-11 attacks. Um, I was going to get your thoughts regarding that uh, incident. Yeah, and uh, I mean, of note, they were en route to an event at the Saudi embassy mm. in Washington. Mm. <laughs> so their, their, yes. their flight was paid for by the, uh, the Saudi government as well. Uh, yeah, so at the time, you know, after they were investigated for this, they were, you know, they were uh, holding themselves out as victims of Islamophobia. But, and, and I'm... I'm not one to quickly dismiss such things because I've definitely seen, uh, you know, an increase in Islamophobia in the wake of 9-11. Mm-hmm. However, when you scrutinize this and, and look at it and look at their activities um, after this uh, incident, um, you know, you see that, uh, it, I mean, it looks very much like it, they were attempting to test security and mm-hmm. uh, learn things for future uh, flight. There was a, there's a lot of incidents that were basically almost underreported, but at the time when they happened, they were given little attention and were investigated by the FBI. Um, but one such incident uh, involving Saudis and the hijackers, of course, is the prominent uh, meet between Omar al-Bayoumi and Osama Basnan. Um, and who are Os- o- Omar al-Bayoumi and Osama Basnan? Osama Basnan uh, was a, these are uh, individuals in California, both of them. Um, Osama Basnan was identified by the uh, U.S. government as an extremist who, um, uh, who had apparently uh, bragged to an FBI informant that he was even more helpful to two of the future hijackers than Bayoumi was, who we'll talk about in a second. Mm. Um, he, uh, um, he host, one time hosted a reception for the blind sheikh, so-called, who was uh, later convicted of you know, plotting attacks in New York City. Um, and Omar al-Bayoumi is, he's an interesting person. You know, I mentioned earlier, uh, you know, that some of the figures associated with this aren't necessarily Saudi government officials, but apparent agents of the Saudi government. And I was, I was really talking about Omar al-Bayoumi. Um, he lived in San Diego and uh, he gave quite a great deal of assistance to few, two future 9-11 hijackers. And these are you know, two of the hijackers that, we, that are really essential and you know, most central to the uh, story in terms of uh, trying to unravel the you know, apparent links between the Saudi government and, uh, and the 9-11 plot. Um, and he helped... He helped these two hijackers uh, get situated in San Diego um, to the extent of uh, putting down a you know, deposit for their first month's rent and uh, introducing them to people and you know, really help, helping them, I guess, get driver's license, that type of thing. Um, so, uh, and he, we talk about him being an apparent agent. Um, he had a no-show job at a Saudi government affiliated aviation company in Southern California. Um, you know, by no show, meaning, you know, he was on a payroll, but 
nobody ever saw him there <laughs> at work. So he's, right. he's just getting this uh, payroll, this, this, uh, these payments. Um, not only did he receive payments, but uh, they, during the time uh, after the hijackers arrived, those payments skyrocketed from $465 to $3,700. Um, hmm. a month a month and then they stayed at that elevated level until Bayoumi left the country in August of 2001 so you have this strange correlation of this uh, uh, you know apparent uh, stipend from the Saudi government you know soaring just at the same time uh, overlapping with his assistance to these uh, two future hijackers um, who he claimed he had apparently met by chance mm -hmm. you know that's that's an uh, interesting central story to this is that um bayumi you know again who lived in san diego you know drove all the way up to uh, los angeles uh, to the uh, saudi embassy in los angeles um there he met with a saudi uh, embassy official named fahad al-tumari mm -hmm. and um so they had a meeting and then he goes directly from this meeting to a nearby restaurant where he encounters these two future hijackers I mentioned earlier, Nawaf al-Hazmi and Khalid al-Midar. And uh, you know, he would later tell people, that, oh, we, I just happened to run into these two there and uh, because they you know, recognized that, I guess their dialect or something was the, was the claim. Um, but the, so from that point, he invites them to uh, come to San Diego and, and, uh, and help them uh, get situated. Just before that meet, um, I'm not I'm not familiar I'm not sure if you're familiar with the story about Khalid Benamarine. Um, the name is definitely familiar. You have to yeah. I, yeah, this was this, this was a Tunisian cab driver. Yes, that yes. Was, that was ordered by Fahad Al Tomeri to pick up two Saudis, but uh, Fahad Al Tomeri didn't uh, mention the names uh, of the, the two, and then when Khalid Benamarine actually picked up the two, they, he drove them to the mosque, which was the King Fahd Mosque in, in Los Angeles, California. Um, and later on, the FBI actually uh, interviewed Kuali Benamarine um, and they showed him 30 photographs and 19 of those were the hijackers of 9-11. And he picked out the two men that he picked up. There was Khalid, uh, Khalid Al-Madar and Nawab Al-Hazmi. Um, about a week, about a week or 10 days later, Robert Mueller uh, ordered the investigation to be shut down and they deported Kuali Benarine back to Tunisia. Um, just, just, it's just another example of the FBI uh, trying to investigate these incidents involving Saudis and they're stopped by their superiors. Is this a consistent theme regarding uh, what we saw after 9-11? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. At every turn, uh, you know, from investigation like that to the 9-11 commission, you see, um, you see uh, sincere interest to examine this by, you know, frontline investigators and, and so forth uh, being thwarted or, or even by 9-11 you know, commission investigators uh, being thwarted by the government, you know, whether it's the FBI or the White House. Um, yeah, at every turn, there was uh, uh, forces that determined that that was not a priority. Yeah, and that's unfortunate because they're, they're, between just Khalid al-Midar and Nawaf al-Hazmi, there's such a, uh, a prominent, um, almost this uh, glaring aspect regarding uh, the Saudis and their links to Khalid al-Midar. Another um, 
question I have for you is regarding uh, the JIS report. Uh, they mentioned an FBI informant who lived in Lemon Grove, California, whose code name was Stan, and but it was later revealed his name was Abdus Sutter Sheikh. And in 2000, both Al Midar and Al Hagbi rented a room from his home, um, but his handler, which is uh, by the name of Stephen Butler, um, he was informed by the Sheikh about these two men. But Joe uh, Butler asked for the surnames. And he never gave him the surnames, nor did he tell him about their um, their efforts in trying to take flying lessons. Uh, later, Butler said that if he was told about Al Midar and Al Hagmi, and if the CIA would have shared the information to the FBI regarding Al Midar's U.S. visa at Alex Station, the 9/11 plot very well may have fallen apart. Uh, can you talk about this further? Yeah, I mean, uh, the, he's a key part of that, and you, you talk about what might have uh, prevented 9-11. Um, you, know, you referred there to the, uh, you know, what happened at Alex Station. You know, Alex Station was the, uh, you know, for the listeners, was the uh, CIA's hub for, you know, following Al-Qaeda, right? And uh, mm -hmm. bin Laden. And um, it was kind of multidisciplinary. So it's, it's a CIA undertaking, but you had FBI agents assigned to Alex Station, you know, to help help with that that pursuit um so alex station becomes aware that khalid almidar who was a future hijacker had obtained a multi-entry u.s visa um and you know at the time they also knew he was an app you know he was an al-qaeda hmm. asset you know um and had and was uh participated in a you know right before he came to los angeles he had been in kuala lampur at a basically a terror summit, um, a you know key meeting, uh, it goes from there and you know flies to Los Angeles as a multi-entry visa. So the FBI agents, upon hearing this, they of course want to notify um, their FBI headquarters, let them know, hey, we've got a known Al Qaeda coming into the country. He has a multi-entry U.S. visa. He's going to you know come back and forth, and not just once. You know, this guy's going to have. So this is somebody we want to keep an eye on. Um, and the two agents were Mark Rossini and uh, Doug Miller mm. at Alex Station. And Doug Miller drafted a, uh, I think it's called a Central Intelligence Report, a CIR, basically, you know, a, a part of the bureaucracy, but it was just a, a means of transmitting a memorandum, uh, I guess, to uh, FBI headquarters, letting them know that. Well, the CIR process requires, you know, the supervisors to you know, basically authenticate and approve that it can proceed. And it was blocked. It was blocked by the CIA. And a lot of people, a lot of people have this sense of, oh, the, you know, there wasn't good communication between the FBI and the CIA. Or, you know, oh, it's a shame things fell through the cracks. That's absolutely not what happened here. You had the CIA uh, supervisors actively interfering to impede and block that information from flowing to FBI headquarters. Um, and, you know, Mark Rossini, the other agent, uh, you know, he followed up trying to pursue it and was told, look, we'll decide when the FBI headquarters needs to know that. It's not for you to, you know, really clamp down on them. Um, and he, you know, at 20 pagesorg people can go to there and uh, read an interview um, I did with them. If you just search for Rossini in the search box, um, but you know this is something that he you know weighs on him for his entire life. Mm. You know he 
went by the rules. He didn't tell FBI headquarters or, you know, find some back way to let them know about it. Um, and then uh, imagine when, you know, 9-11 happens and he sees it's, <laughs> that it's uh, you know, this very same individual uh, on one of the planes. So, you know, had he said had the FBI had been notified, they would have, uh, you know, monitored these guys, tracked it. And, um, he, you know, he thinks that it's the difference between 9-11 happening or not happening is the uh, CIA blocking that from happening. Of course, you know, he has his theories about why. Um, specifically, he thinks that the CIA was attempting to, his theory is that the CIA was attempting to um, turn Khalid Al-Midar yeah. or, or Nawaf Al-Hazmi into an asset, you know, to uh, flip them in, in essence that they would start providing information to this, which done on U.S. soil is a violation, you know, is, is against the law. The CIA is not allowed to operate like that on uh, U.S. soil. So it's not only an interference that allowed 9-11 to happen, but one that did so criminally, if that theory is true. Yeah, I, had, I previously had interviewed Mark Lucini two episodes ago uh, regarding uh, what happened at Alex Station. Um, and he basically uh, echoed the same uh, statements that you just uh, said here today regarding Al-Midar and Al-Hazmi. Um, but the FBI uh, had so much intelligence regarding Saudis and uh, their... Um, being at flying uh, at flight schools throughout the mid '90s, um, there's also a prominent FBI file commonly known as the Phoenix Memo, which was reported uh, information from an insider informant named um, Henry Ellen, um, who was an Islamic convert and later went by the name Abu Yusuf, um, and reported back to his handler uh, Kenneth Williams um, about suspicious Arab males who held vitriol for America and taking fly lessons. Uh, in 1996 and 1997. Uh, one name he mentions is Hani Hanjour. Um, can you explain further what the Phoenix memo entailed? Yeah, it was a memo written by uh, Kenneth Williams, who's now retired FBI agent, um, basically alerting uh, headquarters that, you know, he's observing something that he thought uh, merited uh, uh, further investigation nationally. You know, he, he uh, recommended that the FBI, you know, start putting out feelers, making contacts with flight schools across the country to see if they were seeing a pattern of uh, 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 I guess Saudi and other mm. people who are here in the country um, attending flight training and to investigate that. And it was uh, uh Basically, now this, you know, unlike the CIA one where it's blocked, this one appears to have just, you know, gone into the bureaucracy and withered, you know. Uh, but again, this is a very uh, pointed warning um, that, uh, like, had it been heated and, you know, had it, people investigated, right. you have to wonder, again, would 9-11 would have happened if, if this uh, had been followed through upon? It's almost like it was ignored altogether, like many other prior FBI reports, um, one of them being, of course, um, the Bajinka plot, which was a plot to um, implant bombs uh, hidden in Timex watches on 12 planes, have them all uh, explode over the Pacific. And this was an operation 
that was constructed by 1993 World Trade Center suspect um, Ramzi Youssef and his uh, uncle Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who's currently in Guantanamo and being the mastermind behind the 9-11 plots and where the idea came from. Uh, the Philippines investigator Rodolfo Mendoza actually uh, uh, interrogated Abdul Hakim Murad, who was an associate of Ramzi Youssef, and basically alleviated to his, his interrogators about the details of the plot. And it was uh, manifold. It was an assassination attempt on um, uh, Pope John Paul II, who was to visit the Philippines, um, and of course, uh, hijacking one plane and crashing it into CIA Langley headquarters. And I think that's where the idea for 9-11 originated from. And that warning actually was shared with the FBI, and the FBI, of course, right in the wind. So, uh, of course, why am I bringing this up is because you had uh, National Security uh, Advisor uh, Condoleezza Rice, who went before the 9-11 Commission and basically said, uh, we had no idea they would use planes as weapons. Well, you had prior intelligence coming from the FBI uh, showing you that there was a, even years prior, talking five, six years prior to the attacks, that yes, there was a, you know, suspicious admirals that were um, attending flight training schools. Um, so there seems to be quite an enormous amount of Saudi involvement, whether it be indirectly or directly. Um, so my question to you is, why is the United States protecting the Saudis instead of prosecuting those uh, affiliated with the attacks? I, th I think there's just so many interests that, uh, so many different forces and institutions that have a, an interest in uh, perpetuating a friendly relationship between the Saudi government and the U.S. government that it creates a lot of pressure to ignore things. Um, you know, I mean, first of all, the thing people most first think of is, uh, you know, the uh, petroleum business and, you know, our, our dependence on oil, which, of course, we're not nearly as dependent on Saudi oil as we used to be. Um, but you've got this U.S. close Saudi, this South close Saudi-U.S. relationship, you know, dating back to um, World War II and FDR meeting with the Saudi king on a warship um, and really this mutual commitment. Uh, of support to each other um and it's funny every i mean every, not funny but it's interesting how every president just keeps perpetuating that relationship even even when their rhetoric before coming into office is one thing then they get into office and it's another i mean most pointedly uh donald trump um you know trump as he was running for office, it was 2016. That's overlapping with the drive to declassify the 28 pages. They weren't out quite yet at, at the time the, of the anecdote I'm about to share. But um, he, you know, he was on a stage and he said he was uh, ridiculing Bush for having invaded Iraq and calling it, you know, a disaster and saying they didn't have anything to do with 9/11. He said, "This is Donald Trump." He said, "You know," he said, um, "You may." There are some secret pages, and you might find out it was the Saudis who brought the towers down. You know, so yeah, that's mm. that's that's candidate Trump. Then once elected, and that was pretty out. You know, it's pretty uh, out of the norm. You know, with somebody of that level to be talking about about that, um, consistent with what you and I were just talking about, the tendency to put it all under the rug. Then then he's elected, and uh, he. 
he proceeds to have an extraordinarily close relationship with the Saudi government, the one he had <laughs> suggested mm. was behind 9-11. Um, and uh, I think, you know, to the extent that his first state visit, you know, he broke protocol. It had been tradition in the United States that the first presidential visit is either to Mexico or to Canada, you know, one of our, our neighbors. His first state visit was to Saudi Arabia. Um, and you know, I think a big reason for that, um, you know, I talked about oil. Now you get to the other reason. You know, one of the big things that Trump touted during his presidency was these giant weapons deals that were done, um, selling uh, weapons to Saudi Arabia. Um, it's almost like a uh, protection scheme or racket. I mean, the Saudi government pay, you know, buys all these weapons from the uh, U.S. government in the United States, and uh, uh, in exchange, they have this cooperation thing. Um, uh, and so you've got a lot of, again, getting back to forces who have an interest in maintaining that positive relationship. All these weapon manufacturers, um, you know, they don't want to see their apple cart, you know, they don't want the... Mm. <laughs> their apple cart tipped over uh, the gravy train interrupted by uh, a cooler relationship between the two countries uh, they want to uh, keep that flowing and their influence extends not only in the sense of lobbying and campaign contributions and all that type of thing um, but also to the think tanks um, in Washington and one of the one of the, one of the most esteemed think tanks is the Center for Strategic and International Studies, you know, uh, and they receive direct funding from the Saudi government and from the uh, arms manufacturers. So when people hear think tank, they think of some neutral academics, I guess, you know, in a setting. Um, but, uh, you know, how their bread is buttered is obviously going to have an influence on their output. And you, know, you see that when you study the uh, material produced by the Center for Strategic and International Studies, uh, they did a white paper about the 28 pages before the 28 pages were released, kind of examining the issue. And it, I did a big uh, breakdown of it at 28pages.org. But I mean, it's just, just to the point of just uh, ridiculous. Uh, it truly read like a public relations piece on behalf of the Saudi government. And it's just... It, Un unbelievably one-sided to be you know, for a, for a uh, white paper from a supposed think tank. So that all kind of reinforces this um, uh, this relationship and keeps it going. To to uh, going back to the twenty eight pages, there's a on page four eighteen, and you notice on the website twenty eight pages dot org about the incident of Salah Al Hussein. Uh, yeah. Can you elaborate a little bit further on that? Yes, you know, and I, I would encourage people to just kind of go through the 28 pages and just thumb through them, or uh, <laughs> virtually thumb through them. Uh, and you'll see name after name and incident after incident. This is one of the, yeah, I'm glad you brought this one up. This is uh, yeah. one of the more interesting ones. Mm. Um, he was a, a senior cleric, a Saudi cleric. He arrives in Virginia just before 9-11, and he changed his lodging, you know, where he was staying and ends up in the same hotel as a number of the uh, Flight 77 hijackers. Um, then the FBI interviews him. And in the middle of this interview, the FBI said, 
that he either that he passed out or faked having some kind of a mm. seizure um, in the middle of the interview. Then he's released and is able to uh, leave the United States, you know, without kind of basically dodging uh, the efforts of law enforcement officials to try to track him down and you know continue that interview. Um, and then he gets back to Saudi Arabia and is promoted to uh, a position where he's overseeing uh, the mosques in Mecca and Medina, you know, the holiest sites in Islam. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're talking about just an absolutely extraordinarily prestigious post in Saudi Arabia. Um, so, yeah, so that's a, one of the more interesting uh, overlaps where you've got uh, a, a a change, yeah, and again, him changing hotels just before this happens and ends up in the same same place as the same. Yeah, uh, in fact, I think it, it actually was at another hotel and he transferred over. And the reason why was because the hotel that he previously stood in didn't have a, uh, a stove oh, okay. or something like that yeah. to that extent. I, I, I did a little bit of um, an article and I mentioned uh, him. I, to me, that's a uh, one of the more interesting stories and links between high-level Saudi officials and the 9-11 uh, hijackers themselves. And that's just another uh, incident regarding how close uh, Saudi officials and operatives were to the hijackers. Um, yeah. Now, and I, I think there's a point to be made here, too, because um, we, we talk about how many incidents and how many different you know, name after name and angle after angle keeps popping up. And I guess what I want to point out is that if you look in U.S. media anytime or the media, anytime they mention, you know, the allegations of Saudi links to 9-11, they always point out the same thing. 19 of the, no, was it 14 of the hijackers, 15? We're Saudis, right? 15. 15, 15 thank you. Um, I've written a couple hundred articles at 28pages.org. I never put that in a single article because it's the least important aspect. Mm. Not... Uh, all 20 all 19 could have been from uh ireland <laughs> and uh uh it this case would still the allegations would still be as material because what you're talking about is assistance and facilitation it doesn't really matter the nationalities of the people who did it i mean obviously there's a connection obviously that's something but in terms of the case a lot of u.s media re reads like the case is about the fact that the 19 uh 15 to 19 hijackers were from uh, Saudi Arabia. The case is nothing about that. And when I say case, I'm referring to the uh, civil suit that's ongoing you know, mm. between 9-11 victims and uh, uh, the Saudi government. Um, but uh, yeah, it's so much beyond that. Uh, it's you know angle after angle and connection after connection between you know, people associated with the Saudi government, people associated with the plot. Right. There was, there was a, another interesting incident. I wish I could remember the names of Saudi princes. Uh, after 9-11, they were found killed. One was actually, I think, uh, one was dead in a desert where he died of thirst. Another one was... Um, a heart attack. Yeah, was it a heart attack? I think, you, I think you, it's you, said to be a heart attack. If I, on that a if I recall, and I can't remember who the FBI had interviewed, it might have been Abu Zubaydah. I can't hmm. remember. Um, but the FBI, you know, somebody associated with 9-11. Yeah, that, I think that's right. I think that's right. right. It was Abu Zubaydah. That's right. Okay. So he, yeah. so he, he, he had contact was, information regarding some of those principles. Yeah. 
Right. And so shortly after he kind of elevates these names to people of interest, um, you know, one was said to have died of a heart attack. The other was said to have died of thirst in the desert, you know, shortly after these are. So, um, yeah. So dead men tell no tales is probably what happened there. Sure. I, I, the thing is, is that it was really not, I mean, that's a, to me, it's a, a great link into, um, you know, here you have an Al-Qaeda operative with names of prominent Saudi princes, and then all of a sudden, all three turn up dead. Right. Um, and so it's just a matter of convenience. Again, uh, yeah, like you say, dead men tell no tales. To go a little bit uh, about into the civil lawsuits that are coming out after this, um, one of them is the JASTA Act. Uh, what is the JASTA Act? JASTA is the Justice Against Sponsors of Terrorism Act. And it was many years in the making, and it was finally enacted in the fall of uh, 2016 um, over the veto of President Obama. It was Obama's only veto override of his uh, term in office. Um, and it modified something called the uh, Foreign uh, Sovereign Immunities Act. Uh, it basically modified U.S. law to make clear that uh, and, and clear a hurdle, a legal hurdle that had been put in the place of 9-11 uh, uh, survivors wanting to sue the Saudi government. Now, the JASTA doesn't mention Saudi Arabia at all. It just says that uh, uh, basically uh, there's something called sovereign immunity. The presumption is that you can't sue foreign governments. So then really what you come down to is a allowing in certain cases, what are the exceptions that allow you to sue a foreign government? JASTA makes clear, yes, you can sue a foreign government uh, for uh, their alleged uh, sponsorship of terrorist acts that occur on US soil. So that's what the act basically says in a nutshell. And so it cleared the way for this uh, civil suit to proceed, um, which is 9-11 victims, you know, people who were there and injured and so forth, um, or you know, from the following, uh, all the health hazards that you know, emerged after the after 9/11, um, victims, uh, family members, um, and also insurers, of course, have a huge interest in this as well, since they were you know, paid out untold billions of dollars in claims uh, on this. So, um, so yes, yeah, so they are uh, suing the Saudi government. It's an extraordinarily complex case and an extraordinarily uh, slow case as it grinds through the court system. I mean, it is underway. Um, they, uh, you know, I guess the, the main action right now is in the uh, discovery phase um, where they are interviewing you know, various people. Um, uh, the, uh, and also, you know, discovery phase also includes the production of documents. And here the, uh, the FBI and the U.S. government in general continues to resist, mm. you know, releasing documents to this case. Um, you know, some are released, but uh, you know, there's just a report this last week about a, I guess, another batch that were denied in the case um, by the FBI. So it's a very, uh, I guess, a slow grind of a case because there's. Very, you know, various motions back and forth and challenging of you know, what should be admitted and who should be interviewed and what documents should come out. And then the, mm -hmm. each period between each process of that, you know, these, of these filing of a 
a motion and then a response, you know, months at a time. So, um, you know, I recently saw one of the uh, attorneys for the plaintiffs kind of lamenting the fact that some his plaintiffs are starting to die now. I mean, we're going on 20 years hmm. since 9-11 and they've been you know, pursuing this ever since that. I mean, this, uh, you know, JASTA cleared that final hurdle, but it, it would already, you know, it already been kind of working through the courts before that. Uh, so, um, for these 9-11 families who have been trying to pursue this, pursue justice, get some measure of justice, uh, uh, it's uh, kind of heartbreaking to watch them experience their own government, uh, apparently, you know, apparently, you know, ostensibly uh, siding with the Saudi government uh, in uh, um, thwarting the release of information and the transparency. And uh, uh, there was a hearing a year or so ago where the 9-11 families were really quite angry to see the attorneys for the uh, FBI sitting cheerfully with the attorneys for the Saudi government in the courtroom. Mm. You know, uh, you'd think they would at least hold up an appearance of neutrality, but um, so yeah, that, that angered them quite a bit. Yeah, there's a number of law firms, one of them being Needler Law Firm and Motley Rice, who are trying to pressure the Southern District of New York uh, to release new information regarding the Saudis. Um, but it just seems uh, that we have many prominent congressional leaders with the Israeli lobby or the APAC conference, but not many people are aware of the Saudi lobby. How powerful is the Saudi lobby inside the United States? It's very powerful and uh, very obviously well-funded <laughs> by the Saudi government. Um, the, uh, you know, one of the better examples of that is uh, as, JASTA, that Justice Against Sponsors of Terrorism Act, which enabled the suit, um, was working its way through Congress. Um, the Saudi government, you know, launched an enormous campaign to uh, stop that, you know, with lobbying and uh, so forth. Um, then JASTA passed, and then then they took it to an entirely new level. Um, they launched an enormous counterattack aimed at repealing JASTA or weakening it, you know, because you can imagine the how much they have at stake in this case. Um, I mean, financially, it's enormous. I mean, the thing about putting a price tag on uh, you know, nearly three thousand lives lost, six thousand injured, uh, billions and billions of uh, uh, property damage, um, punitive damage. What kind of punitive damage would you put? You know, so obviously they have an enormous stake there financially, but also from a uh, reputation point of view um, and what it would do to rock um, potentially US, that cozy US Saudi relationship if uh, you, know, you had a unflattering things coming out in this case. So yeah, so they uh, hired you know, dozens and dozens uh, you know, of, of firms and uh, assets across the country. So the extent of even lobbying state governments and state government officials to oppose JASTA, arguing that it would, you know how the uh, Pentagon, you know, when they build a jet, they, every part's in a district, you know, mm -hmm. 
there's components all over basically using that that you know every state has an interest in the f-35 or whatever they're buying from us and other other things and and argue that it'd be bad for the state economies if jasta proceeded so i mean that nice. that kind of shows you how comprehensive their uh, lobbying effort is it includes you know former uh, senators and you know on their payroll and yeah there's a lot of interest involved um here and abroad um in in the very early uh, period after 9/11, with the advent of the with the construction of the 9/11 Commission uh, and the joint inquiry into the attacks, um, where did you get the idea to make the website 28pages.org? Um, from a press conference I saw. Um, it was the summer of 2014, and I just happened to see. Uh, video of a press conference being led by uh, uh, Congressman Walter Jones, Congressman uh, Thomas Massey, those are two Republicans, and Stephen Lynch, a Democrat from uh, Massachusetts, who were, they had uh, introduced a resolution urging the release of the 28 pages, and I, I had not really heard of the 28 pages before at that point, and uh, I found it an intriguing uh, topic. Um, at the time, I was looking for an outlet for my uh, general frustrations with the government. <laughs> and so yeah. uh, just like, you know, what, what might I get involved in? Um, this is kind of you're pursuing your uh, uh, inquiry here with your series. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I was looking for something to do as well. And uh, yeah, so I, uh, I, when I found that there was no, you, know, you had this congressional leadership pushing the issue, but when I found that there was no, Number one, there wasn't very good information on the internet in general about the 28 pages. All right. Um, and then, so that you, you had kind of a lack of good information. And then you also, there's a lack of uh, anybody pushing kind of a grassroots push on this, um, you know, urging people to, notif uh, to contact their legislators in Washington and so forth and press the issue. Um, so yeah, so I, I just decided uh, to launch 28pages.org as a information activism hub um, for this drive to declassify the pages. Uh, and I wanted to make sure it was done right, you know, before mm. somebody else did. Um, I didn't, I didn't want anybody with an Islamophobic bent to, <laughs> yeah. to stake their flag out there and be the one leading the charge on this. And uh, I, yeah, I wanted to create a site that was very, uh, rooted in facts and not speculation. Um, that would be a credible uh, source for, not only for uh, citizens to learn about it, but also journalists uh, to uh, kind of have resources and so forth to turn to. Um, and then also to press, use it as a hub to uh, uh, encourage people to get involved and uh, press their legislator to co-sponsor that resolution and build that momentum. And it was also, it, it was a tantalizingly finite goal as well, <laughs> you know, uh, we yeah. all have a lot of uh, things we'd like to change about government. This one seemed like, hey, we can do this one. You know, it's 28 pages. Mm -hmm. Can we just get these 28 pages? It was like a very uh, targeted uh, uh, topic, uh, targeted goal. So that that had some appeal as well. Sure, it's it's also the, the prominent uh, website regarding the 28 pages. Um, all, I, I've revered your website, revered it very much so. Um, over the years, in, in the same fashion as I revered uh, historycoms.org. No, thank uh, you. Com. Well, yeah, yeah. Was, 
it's very informative, very lengthy too. Um, but in regards to, I have to admit uh, some uh, that in regards to about conspiracy and speculation, rabid conspiracy theorists have been at the forefront, unfortunately, in regards to 9-11, more so than any other event that I've come across, unfortunately. And one of them is regarding uh, the Pentagon issue of whether a plane had crashed there or not. Right. And that goes back to Khalid al-Midar and Nawaf al-Hazmi and the direct link to Saudi operatives and Saudi officials um, funding them. With, the conspiracies that came out regarding the Pentagon issue uh, came out as early as 2001 um, regarding one book called Lepent Gate written by Thierry Mason suggesting that um, the hole that was the impact hole of the Pentagon was only 16 feet and it was blocked off by the fireman's uh, foam that was covering the first floor trying to put the fire out near the hole into the generator. The conspiracies that surround that issue of the Pentagon still permeate the truth movement today, the 9-11 truth movement. Does this help agencies like the FBI, like the CIA, um, in regards to the general public uh, believing the more fanatical tales and not investigating the issues further, not investigating something like the 28 pages further because of this? Yeah, I think all that definitely... Uh, helps immunize the government against having to become more transparent on 9-11. You know, I kind of experienced that myself when I launched 28pages.org. Mm. And I did so, my primary interest wasn't a uh, whodunit or let's expose the real right. story and that, and that kind of a sense. Mine was coming from more of a foreign policy interest. Mine, my interest in the case was, hey, here's an... Here's a way to expose the hypocrisy of the United States government, uh, where, especially in this foreign policy realm, where um, we, the United States government invades Iraq after stirring up all these connections between these false connections between 9-11 and Iraq. Meanwhile, they're uh, burying 28 pages, you know, summarizing all kinds of leads and connections between the Saudi government and 9-11. Mm. So that was my interest, just to kind of as a background. Um, so I wasn't quite prepared for <laughs> when I did that, uh, what I was going to encounter, because when I started writing about it, you know, the people who uh, embrace some of the wildest theories are all commenting on my, you know, I shut down comments on my pages because it was just becoming, mm. you know, no, nothing but all this, uh, you know, the, the, the oddest of ideas and theories about 9-11. And I respect everybody's, you know, opportunity to examine things and look at different angles. That's fine. But sure. um, but the more, uh, you know, there's so much odd stuff out there. And, I, you know, I, I guess I became more and more aware of all of them as time went on. And I guess my favorite was when I learned that of the, uh, the theory of the World Trade Center is coming down by a remote anti-gravity ball. I mean, mm. that was that was out there. So uh, yes. I mean, we can laugh at it, but but back to your question, your point, yeah, it definitely undermines it. I mean, uh, every time I explain to people what I was pursuing with 28pages.org, I always felt this, uh, I always felt I was handicapped, that I always had to uh, work extra hard to demonstrate, hey, I'm not one of the people who, uh, is you know, embracing these odd theories. I had to keep saying, hey, this is a legitimate thing. And you've got former mm -hmm. 
Bob Graham, the former chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee, would you know thinks that you're know, not all this information is being out. So yeah, so there is this tendency uh, if you're pursuing 9/11 transparency to be perceived as a nut job unless you <laughs> unless you prove otherwise. So yeah, so definitely definitely not helpful to you know people who have a sincere and well grounded interest in uh, you know learning more about the truth of 9-11 uh, that you have all that dynamic in the background. It's, it's just unfortunate because, uh, you know, I, I, every day um, inundated on viral media with, uh, you know, the more fanatical tales coming from people who have hijacked the truth movement. Now, I'm not, this is not a generalization of the whole truth movement because I've met uh, very responsible, reputable researchers. Of course, who, yeah. But, but the problem is that they're they're almost like um, at the background, so to speak, blanketed by the more outlandish and more louder uh, proponents of these theories, um, and it just perplexes me. And, and at times, uh, I'm almost like staggered, and I shouldn't be because I've uh, experienced uh, firsthand these uh, outrageous allegations. But at the same time, it's almost like I have to throw my hands up sometimes and to say, you know, is the effort worth it? And I think, yes, it is. It is worth mm -hmm. it. Have people like yourself, um, people who are, like you say, Bob Graham. Um, there, I've done interviews with Mark Rossini, uh, Anthony yeah. Shaver from Able Danger. There are people that are not in the, the whole government is not corrupt. You do have elements of the government that are corrupt in the sense that they are protecting interests. And you have shown that with the 28page.org website. It's not that we're not following the official narrative of the 9-11 Commission report. In fact, we're showing you that they are not fully investigating 9-11 as they should be. Right. Would that be, would that be a proper representation? Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. Um, and now, now we await 20 years running for the biggest trial in American history, uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and the four others charged for their uh, alleged participation in 9-11 attacks. My question for you is twofold. What do you expect to come from the trial if it ever happens? And why did they not have the trial in New York City as opposed to being held in a military, a military tribunal in Guantanamo? I mean, I can't, I can't spell the underlying hardcore legal reasons and rationales for all that type of thing. Um, I don't know if the case is going to have or happen. You know, we talked earlier about you know the 9-11 families pursuing justice in a civil case against Saudi Arabia. I mean, you know, 20 years now we're going on uh, and mm. nobody's been, you know, tried for this, uh, all these people in custody. Um, uh, yeah, so I don't, I mean, I just don't know if that case can happen. It, it was just damaged so severely mm. by the use of torture um, and by the, the pursuit of that. I mean, we, this country has demonstrated the ability to use the U.S. criminal justice system to investigate, try, prosecute, and convict terrorists over and over again. Um, I mean, you've got the so-called 20th hijacker sitting in the Supermax facility in mm. uh, Florence, Colorado, right now, you know, is an indicator of that, and you know, many more beyond that. Um, the blind shake. I mean, we've 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 seen that.
process used. Um, and now, you know, so to not use it in this case, it's just turned into a complete disaster. And one that was compounded by the fact that uh, so much of the so-called evidence and statements was uh, uh, produced via torture. So we can't even necessarily rely on uh, the, the truth of, of what was, uh, what was uh, demanded under torture. So it's a real black mark on uh, the United States government, the way that's been pursued. And it's to the detriment of uh, the U.S. reputation in the world, you know, that the United States would want to hold itself out as this example of justice. Um, and it's been the opposite of that. Um, it's justice delayed is justice denied. And uh, uh, to say nothing of, you know, using torture to, to uh, extract information and confessions and so forth. Just a short follow-up to that uh, regarding the uh, torture of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. Is it, is it, do you think it's because of the fact, the reason why we haven't had a trial is because of the mere fact that we coerced uh, confessions by, by use of torture in regards to Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, Abu Zubaydah, Ramzi bin al-Sheib and the rest? Well, I mean, it, it definitely explains a huge chunk of the delay because so many of the motions that are going on right now in yeah. that case are related to the the torture that's been a, a huge part of it and uh and the defense wanting to you know get more information about where these interviews were conducted and so mm -hmm. forth and uh um there's a black site in poland and uh so so yeah i mean that alone accounts for just administratively for a lot of the delay is the time um to say nothing of you know what we we're talking about earlier as far as the reliability of the information that was gleaned yeah, there's a great book, uh, which I read previously called Ghost Plane, written by Steve Cole, that talks about the CIA salt pits, as they were called, uh, in regards to these uh, uh, torture sites that they used. Um, and the methods of torture that these guys went through were staggering. In, in fact, in Abu Zubaydah's case, um, CIA case operatives knew that he was afraid of bugs, and on the first day, that they interrogated him. They put him in a coffin for 24 hours filled with spiders and beetles. Now, I, you know, I, I, I'm perplexed at the idea of what they probably were trying to do here. Um, in regards to that, prior to the CIA interrogating him, you had Ali Supan, who was an FBI uh, agent out of New York, that was getting somewhere with Ali Supan by um, uh, talking with him instead of uh, harshly interrogating him. Um, I think he was bringing him food. He was calling him by a nickname that his mother used to call him, Hani. Um, and Abu Zubaydah opened right up to him. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, the CIA just comes in right away and basically tortured just about every single body that was alleged to have participated in the September 11th attacks. And the, the, the torture confession of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed produced an enormous amount of uh, incidents that he was a part of. And I remember reading this on a CNN website. It was like 60 uh, incidents of terror. And I'm like, wow, I wonder if they basically tortured him to get him to confess to things that he really didn't take part in. Um, and we yeah. saw it with Sheikh Al-Libby. Uh, right. Sheikh Al-Libby where they tortured him and he told them that, yeah, the uh, Iraq 
was basically uh, in conjunction with Al-Qaeda producing chemical weapons. Exactly. And that was part of uh, Colin Powell's presentation of the mm, United Nations yes. making the case. And he was, uh, I, I interviewed Lawrence Wilkerson, you know, chief of staff to Colin Powell, um, article20pages.org with that interview, uh, mm. where yeah, he, he was talking about how they weren't going to have any of the uh, any of that kind of thing in their presentation, they kind of got tired of it. And at the last, you know, late, very late before the presentation, uh, here comes the CIA saying, oh, we've got this information with Al Libby. Um, and so it was included. And then after they briefed them, they found out that long before that, I think a year before that, I think it was the Defense Intelligence Agency, some other entity had declared that that, uh, that information was completely unreliable. Mm. And but there it goes into that speech that helps facilitate that war. Um, so absolutely. And, you know, there were, I know there were uh, incidents where, uh, you know, torture is proceeding with these other uh, individuals, 9-11. And uh, basically they're reporting to the White House, hey, we think we've got all we can out of this. And the White House is like, keep going. You know, they kept, mm -hmm. you know, they pressured them to keep, keep torturing them. So, yeah, you're going to uh, eventually get people to tell you what i mean they're going to say what you they think you want to hear at some point whether it's the truth or not right and you know and, and nobody's sympathetic to somebody who facilitated 9-11 but you know, if we're, we're talking about justice we're talking about trying to get the truth and the facts that you know torture is not the way to do it it's not a just or moral way to do it um and people also have to guard against uh having this presumption that everybody who's in uh guantanamo bay or has been sent there deserves to be there is guilty a presumption of guilt on their part um i mean in afghanistan you had the u.s government offering bounties if people would identify people as being al-qaeda so you had i mean you could, basically that just encouraged people to point the finger at people they didn't like you know the, the guy who stole your girl or whatever you know the rival from another valley or whatever in afghanistan um and uh you know the u.s government in that case would just swoop them up take them to guantanamo and uh, uh so yeah so uh people should guard against pr the presumption of guilt about everybody who's in there um yeah do i think khalid sheikh Mohammed is guilty yes um but there's you know many other people who went to that facility who uh, were not there and, and may not be. Yeah. Right, and one such example uh, just came out as a movie called The Mortarian, which is the story of Muhammad Aoud Slai, um, who basically was alleged to have persuaded the members of the Hamburg cell, Muhammad Atta, Marwan al-Shehi, Ziyadjar, and Ramzi bin al-Shib, to instead not go to Chechnya, but to go to Afghanistan. And that was the link between the Hamburg cell and Al-Qaeda, allegedly. And it was found out that he had no uh, such invitation to the Hamburg cell. Um, and I think he's in, um, uh, he's stuck somewhere. And I forgot the name of the, of the little place that he's stuck in because mm -hmm. he doesn't have a passport. But um, the movie is called The, Mort the Mortarian. The Mortarian, I, I believe I'm saying that correctly. Um, in which I would tell people to go watch it. It's a pretty yeah, film. it does sound interesting. What is what is the what is the goal of you? What is the future of your website? What what kind of goals do you want to set? Um, and is there um, do you have any other uh, 
ideas or maybe a book that uh, may have crossed your mind? And do you think that uh, there could be, uh, or is it realistic, that there could be another independent investigation into 9-11 attacks, one that will look at the documentation and evidence and not be as selective as the congressional inquiries were? Um, let's see, to answer your first part, yeah, 28pages.org right now is basically a static resource that's out there. I, I'm not adding new content or writing there anymore. Um, I talked to you about how when I launched 28pages.org, it was attractive to me how finite the goal was. Um, the goal was to you know, get the 28 pages hmm. released. Um, and they were declassified in 2016, albeit with you know, many remaining redactions, hmm. but... Um, I think that's as good as it's going to get. Uh, uh, and that's, I think I got the sense from the congressional sponsors that while there's probably maybe some more things of interest in there, uh, that it did go a long way to, you know, revealing, you know, the majority of what is of interest there. Um, so, yes, yeah, so the 20 page.org, you know, the website is maintained. Um, there's you know, hundreds of articles there, the 20 pages themselves, interviews with, you know, Mark Rossini, uh, Lawrence Wilkerson, and a lot of other people. Uh, so it continues to be, serve as a, a resource. Um, and now I um, am, I've uh, changed now. So I'm writing about a variety of contents now, and I have a, a, a Substack newsletter. Substack is a kind of a powerful new trend in journalism right now that cuts out the social media uh, middleman between yes. or, or the or the uh, official i guess uh, newspaper and institutional middlemen uh and editorial middlemen uh between journalists and readers and so it's uh, a means where uh it basically you, you receive content via email um new posts and my newsletter is called stark realities with brian mcglinchey it's at uh starkrealities.substack.com and I had found with the 28 pages that uh, yeah, I'd built a following on Facebook of uh, close to 6,000 people, not an enormous you know, number, but you know, a nice niche group that was interested in my topic. Um, I found that uh, uh, in the wake of the uh, Russia hysteria in 2016, mm -hmm. Facebook started going to clamp down on so-called fake news and so forth. Um, and you know, a lot of, there's a lot of collateral damage, if you will, in that campaign. And I, you know, my, my state was certainly one of them. Um, I, I, I wrote one article and posted it and it was a you know, exclusive with Kenneth Williams, uh, the, of the Phoenix memo fame, um, where he was talking about how the FBI told him not to cooperate with the 9-11 plaintiffs. Mm -hmm. Um, and when I posted that to Facebook, you know, again, close to 6,000 followers, they showed it to four people out of six thousand so um that's why i'm at substack um if you you know go to substack starkrealities.substack.com you can sign up to receive free content um and then you don't have to you don't you don't have to worry about whether you see my content or not it, whereas you will if you if you follow me on facebook good luck because <laughs> the chances you would be notified but this is a kind of cuts out the middlemen um, so that's what I'm doing this. I'm writing about, you know, a lot of topics, you know, foreign policy and domestic policy. So that's where I'm doing now a variety of things there. Just again, trying to expose government hypocrisies and 
common misunderstandings that people have and you know kind of burst myths about a variety of different topics there at stark realities um i have not considered i i mean i have considered over time a book but i don't have any any plans in the making for that you had asked if uh if i felt we'd ever have like a viable credible follow-on inquiry into 9-11 and sadly i must say no <laughs> Uh, I think those, I think it can only be accomplished through work like you're doing, I've done, um, and others in terms of continuing to root things out. Um, you know, the 9-11 commission has this undeserved halo on it. Mm. Um, you know, from a public relations standpoint, it, it accomplished its goal of being the alleged definitive final telling of the 9-11 tale, which it's, you know, anything but on a, in a variety of aspects. Um, and so it's hard to imagine how you'd ever have, you know, 20 years now, hence uh, any kind of momentum towards a new investigation of that, especially when you think about all those interests who want to avoid rocking the boat and stirring that up. So yeah, it's up to, I think, uh, individuals and you know declassification processes maybe of selected documents that type of thing um it's up to former agents and employees of the federal government speaking out um i know you know i mean there are a number of former agents cooperating with the plaintiff's attorneys in the 9-11 case against saudi arabia for example um, Ken, Kenneth Williams, he was told, no, don't talk to them. And initially he, he uh, obeyed that directive, but then crisis of conscience said, look, that's not right. You know, I'm just, <laughs> the truth is the truth. You know, let them have, you know, let them have their day in court. You know, if they can make a case, fine. If not, fine. But just, it, it, he was told, hey, we don't, we don't want you doing that because the, uh, the Trump White House is trying to have good relations with the Saudi government. I mean, that's the Department of Justice. That's the FBI saying that good relations with the between the the uh trump white house and the saudi government is a reason not to uh, basically share facts <laughs> with uh, with yeah. people brian mcglinchey 28pages.org stark realities thank you very much for coming on thanks so much for having me